welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me, as per usual, is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Woolman, and I will be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy looking for uh, ways towards optimal health. So how has your health been, Christina? Oh, fabulous, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the combination of all these wonderful, you know, it's like spring here now, finally, it's warmed up a little bit. So everything's blooming around us. You know, all the birds are fluttering and flying, and fantastic and gorgeous. Um, but of course, you know, those wonderful uh, little pollens are in the air, and so... I'll be muting myself during the whole show, just like with a little cough. <laughs> yeah, pollens are in the air. There's always the yin and yang to everything, isn't there? There is, there is, but it's well yeah. worth it. It's gorgeous, just gorgeous out there. Must be fun for you to be able to uh, do this show and then do your own show, Trinity, and all of the different people that you're working with and things that you're experiencing every day. It's great. Oh, it's fantastic. And as we expand everything, Glenn, as you very well know, we have to, you know, because there's so much to cover. There's so much, so much to learn out there. It's, it's endless. And, and uh, as you very well know, it's uh, all coming up in the next few months, right? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. What, uh, you have, you have a child and you're a parent. So do you worry about the environment that often? Gee, I thought I was the child, too. <laughs> <laughs> your, your child has a, a child mother. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, what, what, did you ask what was it like to be a parent? No, that's a parent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was asking uh, if you are more concerned about the environment and things in the environment mm. uh, as a parent than you were uh, without having a child, did that make a difference for you? No, I think uh, <clears throat> because of of what I've always been into, which is is you know health and wellness, um, <clears throat> and doing body work and and working with people that you know bodies were were stuck or you know had their issues. I was always concerned because I learned more and more <clears throat> about our foods, and I I had to I had to learn more about what was around us. And uh, unexpectedly having a child sort of uh, added to that. And um, I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, would say, I, I wouldn't say it got more heightened. Um, I would say, though, that uh, the awareness on <clears throat> the level of children's products, that was a little more heightened because it was a whole new area for me. I didn't work so much with children as I did with adults. So I believe that that got heightened for me. But yeah. uh, sometimes it's like, you know, that, that little bit of information, sometimes you, 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 we're just touching that tip of the iceberg, and that can be dangerous. <laughs> because well, you get a little bit uh, unnerved at everything that's going on out there. Yeah, there's there's a growing concern for the foods we're eating and the environment that we're in. And that's why today I, I decided to go on a little different uh, way, I've been having uh, healers 
MDs, PhDs that were actually delivering health care. But I thought I would vary it a little bit today with our very special guest, Dr. Gary Winston. He's a professor of toxicology. He's an international speaker and an environmental consultant. And fortunately, maybe for us uh, later, he's also a poet. So I want to introduce to you uh, my very special friend of a long time and colleague, Dr. Gary Winston. Hello, Gary. Hello, Dr. Winston. And hello, Christina. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, I, I didn't, you see the, the toxins all around us. Okay, now we're. I'm going to get itchy. Just. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, may I just? Um, I wanted to say something about the word toxin. There's actually a very, very strong dichotomy between a toxin and a toxicant. When you say toxin, we are talking only about biologically, a biologically generated poison. So that would be snake bites and bee venoms and spider bites and poison ivy and um, Clostridium botulinum toxin and things of that nature. Oh my. When we talk about that, those are what toxins are. They're natural. Toxicants, which, by the way, puts a whole new perspective on the meaning of what's natural and is natural good for you. The other thing is toxicants. A toxicant is usually your synthetic ones. Hmm. So that so, would be what would be in the chemicals, like in the air and... In you our got environment? It. is not a natural one. <laughs> <laughs> so anything that's right. man-made, anything that's, that's man-made right. is a toxicant. Right. Toxicant. Right. Mm. We, we, we toxicologists like to use the word anthropogenic. I think that's obvious, isn't it? Anthro meaning man, pogenic meaning generated. It's generated by man. That's excellent. <laughs> Gary... <laughs> Gary, uh, but we can be uh -huh. more politically correct. Women can generate it also, can't they? Women can generate what? Women can also generate toxicants, so it isn't That's just right. man-made. Um, it, 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 there's, I, I don't know what the Latin root for human is, but nevertheless, yes, they're human, they're human vagenic. <laughs> <laughs> Humankind vagenic. There you go. Gary, I wanted to tell the audience, I usually as the medical guide, I try to give them the path we're going to take during our next hour. So I'm going to start talking to you about some of your personal history and why you are what you are and who you are. And <laughs> then I want to get into uh, some big picture environmental uh, experiences that you had in your lifetime. And then I want to come down to more specifics, some of the uh, specific toxicants that uh, we are hearing more about and more concerned about today that have potential to affect our our lives and our loved ones. And then maybe we'll end with a poem. How's that sound to you today? Sounds fine to me. Sounds absolutely Excellent. fine to me. Perfect. So at at an early age, I'm guessing you got into chemistry and decided to uh, take a career of, into biochemistry and then toxicology. Tell us a little bit about how that happened and when it happened. All right. I, I went 
when I went to graduate school, I majored in biochemistry. Now, as a biochemist, of course, we do research. And it just turned out that most of the research that I did was really toxicological research. And if you look at my curriculum vitae, I published in journals like Toxicological Sciences, Aquatic Toxicology, Pharmacology and Toxicology, and so on. So my research has always been more or less on the study of harmful interactions between chemicals and biological systems. Hmm. And when I say biological systems, I don't necessarily mean an individual organism. I can also mean the population, or I can mean the community, or I can mean the whole ecosystem. Well, let's talk about the ecosystem a little bit. Uh, right near the beginning of your career, you were very involved in marine uh, environment, weren't you? Yes, I was. I did quite a bit of work in the area of marine toxicology. Um, it was a it was a wonderful time in my life, and actually, it was through the marine toxicology work that we really became introduced to the whole term of endocrine disrupting chemicals because it was marine organisms that were the first to have this, this manifest in them. So anyway, um, yes, I did quite a bit of work in the marine toxicology field. So we are going to talk about endocrine disruptors uh, later on in the show. I'm glad you brought that up now. But I would, I'd like to know, you know, the environment was big for us. We just had an oil spill a few years ago, although it seems like it was recent. You were involved in the Prince William Sound, uh, Alaska oil spill, weren't you? Yes, I was, Glenn. I was fortunately named to the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's expert. I'm trying to get the, make, see if the quotation mark, there we go, expert toxicological committee. <laughs> And uh, that got me to Alaska on a number of occasions to try to assess to try to assess what damage was actually done. And um, my role in that particular case was really: did the oil spill affect the subsistence food of the native Alaskans in a way that was going to be harmful to them? And I'd like to get back to that later because. It's very, very interesting because I remember very well the citizens were in a state of panic and their concern was, what is this going to mean to my children down the long, down the long stretch if they eat this fish and they eat this food? So we did what we call the comparative risk assessment and we told them, look, seven months of the year, you eat smoked fish. Now, when you smoke your fish, you're pulling in all of the carcinogens that are coming out from smoke, all of the benzo, it's almost like smoking a cigarette, all of the benzoapyrenes and all of these various kinds of carcinogens. And then we showed them the levels compared to what was actually in the fish who were themselves detoxifying these chemicals. And you know something? This was back in 1984, 85. I can't even remember the year. It's been so long. But nevertheless, 
there has never been a case of illness in any of the children that in any form or fashion would represent the kind of the kinds of illnesses that we would have expected from the exposure to carcinogens. Wow, that's 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 baffling to me after you know everything that we have heard and assumed basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, they had to wash the birds. There's no question about that, hmm. so that they could fly. And is that because? oil is a natural product that the body or the the fish was able to sort of uh, cleanse themselves of it you know christina that's that's really prelude to a very very wonderful question let me say this all of life going back to the very earliest forms of life evolved out of extremely toxic environments. Even the earliest, even the earliest protists, the earliest bacteria, the earliest um, single-celled organisms, they grew out of these hydrothermal vents that we see at the bottom of the ocean and in volcanic um, atmospheres. So as organisms evolved, we developed systems to protect us against invasion of foreign substances. Mm -hmm. We call these foreign substances xeno, meaning foreign, biotic, you know, like a xenophobe, for example, or mm -hmm. one that's afraid of foreign people. So we have this term xenobiotic, which means it's foreign to the body. Well, our body contains a very marvelously evolved mm -hmm. detoxification system. Do all bodies? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's pretty magnificent. I want to tell someone, well, you can eat that fish, but you know, when you smoke that fish, it completely changes. It. Wow, oh. and I love smoked fish. <laughs> if smoked fish is fine, your body is able to handle it, and we excrete it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk. Uh, a lot today about whether some of the things that we're really concerned about should we be or shouldn't we be. So I want to ask you, what is the role of a toxicologist? How does a toxicologist help us in society? We know when we watch television and see uh, the program CSI, we know that toxicologists <laughs> are used to uh, to figure out maybe a cause of death or were there any poisons or toxicants or toxins used to uh, disrupt something. Yeah. But what else yeah. do toxicologists do? How are you out there protecting us? Well, that, that, that's a good question. You know, Glenn, it would be um, almost the same way as if I were to say, what is a physician? And then you know that as a physician, there are many, many different kinds of physicians, many different kinds. Well, there are many different kinds of toxicologists. Now, when I started off my career, I started as a biochemical toxicologist. I was interested in identifying hazards, and I was interested in identifying exposures, dose responses, 
and thresholds. So I was doing risk characterization, you might say. But there are all kinds of toxicologists, as I mentioned, and when I moved to Israel to take on the position as chief toxicologist of the Israel Ministry of Health, which I did for six years, I became a different kind of a toxicologist. I became a regulatory toxicologist. So now I wasn't so interested in what was happening in the test tube or what was happening in parts of the organ's tissue or where the toxin was going or how it was breaking up and being metabolized and excreted. I was more interested in risk management. So that was a big part of my career also. So I went from the laboratory to the regulatory. And in risk management, my role there was rather simple. My role there was to make sure that people were not exposed to levels high enough to harm them and then regulate them so that that's where the levels were. Hmm. What there, you know, there's a question about uh, exposure and risk and and levels that would harm them. Uh, do we have to worry? Maybe there's a level. Let's say uh, I'm making up a number. You need a hundred uh, milligrams of something where it would cause harm. So ten okay. milligrams may not cause harm, according to a toxicologist or environmental protectionists. Would there potentially be a cumulative effect of things so that 10 milligrams today, uh, if you have it again tomorrow, now is it maybe 20 or 18? And then over time, especially in someone maybe that's growing, a, a baby, a fetus, a young child, uh, do we have to be concerned when the government or the regulatory commissions pick a number and say, this is, this is the number where there's danger, so other than that, it's okay? Yes, Glenn, I understand your question. Actually, you asked a multifaceted question there. Usually let's, I do. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's go back to just the idea. I think the first idea was really basically one of thresholds. Is there a level at which something is safe? And then is there a level at which something is not safe? So nice. I like to call that the threshold. And yes, those regulatory agencies who are concerned, very concerned, with the health of individuals are very much aware of threshold levels. We actually have a what we call a reference dose. And uh, the reference dose is the amount that a person can be exposed to for a lifetime notionally without causing any harm on a milligram per kilogram body weight basis per day. We call that the RFD, which, again, is derived from another threshold value known as the no observable adverse effect level. So that means that when we're doing studies, we try to bring the dose down, 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 down until we can finally find a level at which there's no observable adverse effect. And then just to be a little bit extra just to be a little bit extra certain about whether we're protecting people or not, we divide that value by what we call uncertainty factors. So if we were to do a study, for example, in a population of rats, 
or if we were to do it in a population of mice or cinemologous monkeys, it doesn't make any difference. Um, we would have to add a tenfold uncertainty factor to lower that threshold value by a factor of 10 to account for interspecies variability. Hmm. Then we know that human beings vary from one to the next. So we add another tenfold uncertainty factor for interspecies variability. And then if the study was subchronic rather than chronic, we can add another tenfold uncertainty factor. So this is what we do. We add these uncertainty factors. If it was done in all males, we add an uncertainty factor to account for the possibility that the females might behave differently with respect to exposure to a certain chemical. So what we try to do is find out what all of this chemical see, this milieu of chemicals that one might be exposed to, we ask ourselves this question. Does it cause, does it cause similar harm? For example, male reproductive, female reproductive. And then we combine the risk of all of those things as a cumulative risk assessment in order to be able to account for all the things that might have the same harmful effect. I hope that answered your question. It was uh, complex. I know somewhere in there it answered the question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's and I certainly think... what, Glenn, the bottom line is this. Yes, there are thresholds at which there is no harm. Yeah, the, the father of toxicology lived in the 1400s, 16th century. His name was Paracelsus. And he was the one that first came up with the notion that there is some dose at which all poisons are not poisonous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> we needed a 14th century uh, scientist yeah. to help us there. Well, isn't, isn't well, that the way also... Isn't that the way also uh, with uh, a lot of the Eastern medicines, which they do take some of the venomins and everything and actually use it as a, a medicine to cure? Sure, sure. Um, toxins have become some of the most important medicines that we have that we know. Here, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, people who have heart arrhythmias are given a prescription of a drug known as digitalis. Digitalis comes from, it's a toxin, comes from a plant called foxglove. So there is a toxin. Now you can kill yourself with digitalis, absolutely. Um, the people who are anti-fluoridation, they like to go back to the days when communism was uh, very big. Remember the 19, well, I don't know if you do, Christina, but Glenn and I could. We remember the days when we used to have to dive under the desk at school because we were all afraid the communists were going to attack the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, at the time, there was this conspiracy theory that communists were the ones that were putting fluoride in our drinking water not to protect teeth or dental caries, but to harm the population of the United States. Well, <laughs> so the fact is, there's an example of a fluoride. But people would, 
it, it was used in Germany as a rat poison, fluoride. So now people will come up with terms like, why do we want rat poison put into our drinking water? Well, that's very emotional. Well, the fact is, um, if people who have blood clots or are very prone to blood clots put a substance that's very, very similar to what we use as a rat poison, it's called warfarin. It's a coumarin. It's a anticoagulant. And we use that in medicine to prevent people from getting blood clots. So should I go out and say, why should we inject people with rat poison? <laughs> when in fact it's saving people's lives by preventing them from having some kind of a thrombolytic embolism in the brain or something of that nature. So, yes, there are, you're right, there are poisons that have very good medicinal purposes. I was going to say that when we spoke with Lori Grossman, our homeopathic uh, doctor, uh, mm -hmm. many of the homeopaths in one of our earlier uh, talks, many of the homeopathic remedies and many of the Chinese herbal remedies, as you said before, Christina, come from uh, different venoms at, at lower doses. So I think through the history of us, we've been using herbs and spices for many things. Yeah. I want to I want to talk. Uh, there's there's so much concern. I was just at a conference and I listened to Professor Doctor uh, Harvey Katz from his clinical professor at Harvard Medical School, and he was talking about foods and the environment, and he talked about many different things. And I I remembered uh, from the movie when Mr. McGuire talked to Benjamin Braddock who was Dustin Hoffman and the graduate, and he took him aside and said, I want to tell you one word, plastics. Uh, some of us, like you and I, will remember that. But uh, there's so much plastic in our world today, things that we have, and now suddenly we're worried about things in the plastics that can be harmful to us, and we have to memorize what number plastics are good and what are the bad ones. We have plastics... Uh, you know, we search now for a great organic whole grain cereal, and it's uh, when we open the box, it's it's in plastic. <laughs> when we have when we have the IV tubings that are that are mm -hmm. uh, bringing life saving products of blood and antibiotics and medications to us, then we have uh, they're coming in plastics. And I heard at this lecture, <laughs> it was surprising to me, where all of the enteric coated medications that we're taking to protect our stomachs from uh, stomach acids or to digest things more slowly have these abnormal plastics in it. So I want to go over some things with you to talk about whether or not we really need to worry or it's, uh, it's just fear-based. So let's start with plastics. Okay, plastics is a good place to start. I mean, Lord only knows that... Um we we live in a world of plastics. Uh, we just practically demand them. I everybody demands plastics. You can look around. I don't care where you are. You'll find plastics everywhere in the in the universe. And um, plastics, um, the the plastic itself is not the part that hurts you. It's some of the chemicals that are used in certain plastics with a specific purpose of 
softening the plastic. For example, children's toys. Oh, and by the way, um, when when as a toxicologist, the the word that's thrown out to me all the time is, "What about our children? What about our children?" I mean, that is the major concern. What this is going to harm our babies. This is going to harm our fetuses, and so on. Um, there are plastic what we call plasticizers that will make plastic softer and chewable, like um, they're called phthalates. And um, we do these to make little children's toys chewable. Well, yes, phthalates at very high doses in rat studies have been shown to um, affect endocrine disruptors. I mean, they they are endocrine disruptors. They affect, they affect male-female reproduction, uh, male reproduction and female reproduction. So um, exposure to phthalates, you might say, is a, is a hazard. There's no question about it. Phthalates themselves are hazards. But you know what's really interesting? Everybody loves the car. A, a brand new car and what's the thing that they really love about a brand new car when they get into the brand new car they love the smell of a brand new car right as a matter of fact they even make a little thing you can put over your windshield that <laughs> has the odor of new car oh no well you know what you're smelling you're smelling 50 different volatile organic compounds which can cause harm and among some of those are phthalates. So phthalate exposure through enteric coatings on pills, I can say this with absolute certainty. It's a source of exposure. Great. But what does that mean? You were exposed. Does it cause harm? In order to know if it causes harm, we would have to know what the dose is. But in order to know what the dose is, we have to know what the source of contribution to enteric-coated pills and capsules would actually be. Then we would have to know all of the other chemicals that have the same harmful effect, that affect reproductive systems. So we would have to weigh all of these together. There's probably no situation where a single solitary exposure from a single solitary source of phthalates has ever been really shown to cause harm. It may be cause it may be shown to cause elevated levels in the urine. Um, I do know of one study. It was done by a fellow by the name of Hauser. Um, he gave people enteric pills and um, measured a phthalate metabolite in the urine. He measured. He gave what was known as dibutyl phthalate. And he measured a metabolite called monobutyl phthalate. And he found that there were many more monobutyl phthalates in the urine than what he would have expected to have found. Well, this could, in fact, be very, very good. Because what it could mean is two people given an identical dose of monobutyl phthalate, one of those people could be excreting it much faster, metabolizing it and getting it rid of the body much faster. Well, it shows up in the urine as a much higher level. So what does, that, what does that lead people to believe? They were exposed to more phthalates. That doesn't necessarily follow. 
It could be simply that it was metabolized faster, gets into the urine faster, and gets excreted faster. So high levels of monobutyl phthalate in the urine might also might actually be a detoxification mechanism. Just uh, just so that everyone knows, the word phthalate is spelled P H T H L A T E. Correct. Right. It sounded. I, I was bringing you back to my medical school courses for a moment. Uh, <clears throat> I was enjoying that very much. Uh, let's go. Before I talk about a few more of the things that I'm concerned about in our society, let's actually, you, you've mentioned and we brought up the word endocrine disruptors. Why mm -hmm. don't you give a few seconds on what the endocrine system is and what a disruptor is so that as we move forward, people will understand what you're speaking of. All right. Do you want me to talk about the, do you want me to talk about the endocrine system in terms of uh, what in terms of biochemical or uh, physiological uh, parameters, or do you want me to uh, put them into a yoga hub uh, context and talk about them in relationship to various chakras? <laughs> <laughs> oh my, that's going to be another program. I can see it now. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly everything that I have read about the endocrine system, I can find a parallel chakra to a specific endocrine gland. <laughs> well, Let's go in that direction for a moment. First, uh, give a physiological concept of what the endocrine system is, just generally, and then go into a little bit of an endocrine disruptor, and then we'll talk about some of the others that I want to ask you about. But yes, as far as um, the endocrine system is concerned, all, all hormones are generated by glands of the endocrine system, every hormone, okay? And there are some 40 different endocrine glands. And when I say 40 different endocrine glands, I mean, uh, take, for example, the adrenal gland, which lies right on top of the kidney. Well, actually, the adrenal gland consists of many parts, which all secrete different hormones. So we can look at those actually as different glands. But the pituitary gland, the hypothalamus gland, the thymus gland, the thyroid gland, the gonads, the male and female gonads, the pancreas. You know, all of these are endocrine system glands. So that's what we're talking about. And they all secrete hormones. They all secrete hormones that are very important, whether it's growth hormone, whether it's um, thyroid hormone, whether it's pituitary hormone, whether it's, um, you know, gonadotropin hormone. It doesn't make any difference. They're all hormones that get carried through the blood with a specific target organ that elicits a response to that target organ. So that's what the endocrine system is. Yeah, and, that, and that's the system, one of the systems, it's, and it's connected to the neurologic central nervous system. It's connected to all the other system, and essentially it keeps us going. It, it deals with it's our metabolism. The homeostasis of the human body, yes. It is operated through a whole series of feedback mechanisms. For example, if I have uh, too much thyroid hormone, um, hyperthyroidism, then I have a hormone that comes from the hypothalamus gland, which drops down, sends a message to the pituitary gland, and, and, and it says, stop, shut off, shut off the making of thyroid hormone. If I have too little thyroid hormone, I have another mechanism, goes from the hypothalamus gland down to the pituitary gland. And it says, turn on follicle-stimulating hormone. And 
or thyroid stimulating hormone, excuse me. And yeah, if it turned causes, on the follicle hormone, that would be completely yeah, different. Thyroid stimulating hormone. <laughs> and that causes you to make more thyroid hormone. So it's all ready to maintain this homeostatic balance of the human body or any other body for that matter that has endocrine glands. Um, you have definitely got um, feedback mechanisms that control that and maintain the homeostasis of your body. And now we worry about things in our environment that have the potential to block those hormones from doing the uh, necessary uh, work that they're supposed to do, correct? That's correct. Yeah, we call these, uh, these chemicals antagonists. So what it means is it blocks the receptor that the hormone would normally bind to to do its work and prevents the hormone from binding. But we also have the opposite effect, too, and that is the chemical can actually act as a hormone. It is hormonally active. So it can bind to, say, for example, an estrogen receptor and do exactly what estrogen does. So we have ag that's known as, a, as an estrogen agonist or a hormonal agonist. Then we have so it either uh, chemicals promotes it or it, or it uh, antagonizes it, right? Right. Then we have some that are, uh, you know, that putatively um, can actually um, modify the number of hormone receptors that we have. And we have other chemicals that can actually um, alter the pattern of synthesis of hormones. That's very common in the thyroid gland. Okay, so let's talk about a few things now. Let's talk about some of the worries that people have right now. Let's find out if they need to really worry about them or not worry about them. Uh, all of us went to uh, soy sauce and soy milk and soy products, uh, but then we hear that they may be uh, an endocrine disruptor. What's the and story they there? They definitely are. It, um, there are ingredients in soy, uh, genistein, it happens to be one of them, Genistin is another one of them. Diazin is another one of them. There are a lot of these chemicals that are in soy that actually um, act as endocrine disruptors. But on the other hand, there's another camp that says that these are endocrine agonists and can be used in as hormone uh, replacement therapy. So there are always two camps when we come to do this. But I can tell you this much. We do know that soy absolutely is an anti-androgen. Now, what does anti-androgen mean? An anti is against, androgen is a male hormone. So it turns out that soy acts against male hormones. That we know. We know that for an absolute fact. So um, I certainly wouldn't recommend um, males or young boys going around drinking a lot of soy milk, but I certainly would not have any qualms in recommending it to postmenopausal women. Hmm. Would you recommend it to uh, mothers that are just starting to feed their babies and are concerned about our next topic, uh, dairy or cow milk? Would you recommend that they uh, feed soy milk to their kids? There's no reason to, to feed soy milk to children. It's not 
it, it, it's not something that's going to benefit or harm uh, children. It's, it's a hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women, and it's an anti-androgen in men. Um, I might say, um, okay, there's a possibility that if you gave it to a male child, that it might affect um, hormonal growth and secondary sexual characteristics as they mature, but that's just one of thousands of chemicals that would do the same thing. <laughs> and I might say natural chemicals that we find in food. Here's one that I find very interesting. I, 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 I have to just say this as an aside. I think everybody has heard at one time or another of a chemical called diethylstilbestrol, D-E-S, it was called. It was given, diethylstilbestrol was given to um, pregnant women to prevent miscarriage in the 1940s. Well, later on, they discovered that daughters of these women developed a very rare form of cancer called clear cell carcinoma. And even in men, there were, there were um, sperm defects. Uh, the, the, the ducts that produce sperms were degenerating. Um, that's diethylstilbestrol. Now we hear of this thing called the French paradox. The French can eat all the fat in the world, they claim. You know, goose liver loaded with fat. Um, foie gras, I think is what it's called. Um, <laughs> something like that. And um, they, tight, they, they, they tote this to, um, or tout this to, a compound known as resveratrol. You can go into any health food store in the world and find boxes and jars of resveratrol, this natural antioxidant that increases aging, gives you youth. It's a fountain of youth. But you know something? If you look at the formula of resveratrol and you look at the formula of diethylstilbestrol, they are almost identical. Identical, almost identical. And now it has come about that people are beginning to recognize the similarity between this red wine antioxidant and this now banned drug, DES, and they are warning women not to take, not to drink red wine in postmenopausal states because it acts just like diethylstilbestrol and certainly not pregnant women hmm. so i i had to just bring that out because uh here's this chemical that's touted as a natural antioxidant that if you look <laughs> at the structure of it looks exactly like diethylstilbestrol I think what's going to have to happen is that we're have we're going to have to give everyone your website and before anyone eats anything or puts anything on their bodies they're going to have to email you and say is this okay No 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 <laughs> I, I you know one of the greatest miscommunicators of all time um made a really marvelous marvelous statement he says the things that really harm us are not necessarily the things that scare or frighten us. And that is absolutely a fact. 
We get mm. so frightened. I, God, the worst enemy that has ever come out, as far as toxicologists are concerned, is the internet. Because there is <laughs> so much. I, you know, when, when I, what I recommend is that when a person goes on the internet to find something about medicine or to find something about toxicants or to find something about toxins, that they look at the internet, if they see Action Network or if they see um, something that is not a professional medical website, disregard it. Disregard it completely. Go to the NIH website. Go to the NIEHS website. Go to the EPA website. Go to the Food and Drug Administration website. Go to the European Union website. Go to websites that have scientific validity and post only peer-reviewed scientific facts, not, not things that frighten us and scare us. I know that one of the most toxic uh, molecules or chemicals in the world is dihydrooxygen or H2O. <laughs> it's actually killed more people on the planet than uh, probably any other chemical. Of course, we're talking about floods and tsunamis and overdoses, exactly things like right. that. <laughs> yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I mean, I can give you a very nice number. 300 million children in the world die every single solitary year from diarrheal diseases caused by infected water in some places wow. like Africa and, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and so on. One of the, one of the things that I work very, very hard to do in a couple of the um, uh, non-governmental organizations that I belong to, the Institute for Public Health and Water Research, um, International Development Enterprises, is to try to make sure that everybody has safe water. Safe drinking water absolutely needs to be a human right. I am so opposed to privatization of um, drinking water, where drinking water becomes a commodity used for profit that is disgusting. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's the things, it's dirty water mm. that definitely causes. I mean, waterborne diseases are very heinous diseases. What about um, what about the meat and dairy products where we're talking about all these animals receiving steroids and antibiotics and antiviral cocktails and growth hormone? Now, right now in the United States, there are 85,000 different chemicals that are in commerce, that are in some form of international commerce. 2,000 chemicals every single year, and that includes drugs, and that includes pharmaceuticals, that includes veterinary drugs. Now, we have many, many committees through the USDA and through the US EPA and so forth that does their very, very best to try to regulate veterinary drugs. And we have what we call a, um, a, a, a threshold level, a, a, maximum, a maximum residue level that is allowed to be in edible portions of meat. When any drug is given to an animal that's going to be used for human consumption, there are regulatory agencies that sample this, see how fast this drug disappears from the edible portions, and how long it takes to get down to a certain threshold value that we regard as a maximum 
level that is allowed to be in edible portions of food. Obviously, we can't catch them all. We certainly can't catch them all. But on the other hand, you have to think in terms of a larger picture. We have a population that's soon to be 9 billion people in a couple of few years. We have to feed this planet. And one has to make a choice of whether or not a couple of micrograms of antibiotic that gets into an edible portion of food is something that we ought to avoid at the risk of starvation. So hmm. there's always trade-offs. When I say that there's 2,000 chemicals that come into commerce every single solitary year, we study as many of them as we can. We're constantly looking for these rapid uh, screening litmus tests to determine whether they're dangerous or not dangerous. But I can tell you quite, on, you know, quite honestly, that there's about 700 chemicals a year that enter into commerce that never get any testing whatsoever. So it becomes a very, very difficult job for toxicologists to even keep up with the amount of chemicals that are coming into commerce and being produced and manufactured worldwide. It's very, very difficult task. I was listening to a story the other day at uh, one of these lectures, and it was about a, a mother who was taking her young son on his first airplane trip, and they were going over some bad weather. Uh -huh. uh, or my brother, who's a pilot, would call it chop. There was mm -hmm. a lot of turbulence. And, right. uh, and Eric, the child would notice that when the seatbelt light would come on a few seconds later, the ride would get bumpy. And, and the child brought it up to the mother. Every time the light comes on, Mom, the... It gets bumpy. Mother says, yes, that's correct. So the child then looked back up and said, well, why don't they stop turning the light on? <laughs> there, there's a lot of truth to that statement, too, because um, we, we have a whole series of studies known as epidemiological studies where people try to find simply associations between a, an adverse outcome and some kind of an exposure without doing any biological testing or any dose testing or any mechanism testing whatsoever. They just simply make these associations. So what you're saying is very much like another analogy I heard, just because the baby boom occurred at the same time that the uh, stork boom occurred doesn't mean that storks bring babies. You know, So uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very nice analogy of what an association is without having any kind of scientific background or data to support that association. It does give us something to look at, but on the other hand, every, you know, everything that we look at costs money. If we want to look at phthalates, it's going to cost us billions of dollars a year to look at all the different phthalates. There are many, many, many different phthalates. So if we had to test every single solitary one of them, it's billions of dollars that are taken from the expense of very promising clinical drugs. I'd rather see some of that money go into the investment of clinical drugs that have actually shown 
cures of penis diseases rather than spending billions of dollars on things that simply scare us that we really don't have the data to support. So that's, I just heard you make a statement about the, the phthalates being so many hundreds of, of versions of it. <laughs> well, not hundreds of phthalates, but the, all right, like, well, PCBs, for example, everybody has heard of PCBs, no PCBs, right. polychlorinated biphenyls they're known as, these PCBs that are in the environment. There's 109 different congeners of those. Oh. And then there's um, these flame retardants. There's well over 100 different kinds of flame retardants. And perfluoroacetylacetic acid, which is a non-stick uh, coating that you have in your frying pan to prevent things from sticking to your frying pan, that they also spray on carpets to be stain resistant. <laughs> thousands upon thousands of those. Yes, there are. Um, we we have some data, but it's done in animals. We certainly can't ethically give them to human beings to see what the effects are going to be. And to find out if, you know, we're going to let this human being die and this human being die until we finally get down to a dose low enough where that human being didn't die so we know we have a no-observed adverse effect level. So we have to do these studies in rats. So once we get this study done in rats, then we start adding these uncertainty factors to cut the allowed dose by a factor of 10 or 100 or 1,000. Gary, uh, you've been giving us a lot of science, but we know there's art and science and everything. How about yeah. uh, a poem for us? <laughs> a poem for us. <clears throat> well, um, I can think of a, well, here's a poem that I wrote. Um, it, it, it's, um, this poem uh, it has a relationship to um, drought, lack of water, and global warming. And I don't even like to say global warming. I like to say climate change. And uh, it's called The Barren Tree. And I wrote this one oh, a few years ago. It's been published in a couple of literary magazines. Um, so it's like this. To comprehend the barren tree is enigmatic and possibly to all who sojourned on paths unbent the parched leaves crackled admonishment. Stand back and contemplate my bow, gaze and wonder, then avow that in solid ground I was planted for those who took my shade for granted. Linger now as another day dims, grotesque in shadows that frame my lips. This little poem for you. Mm, thank you. <laughs> my pleasure. Oh my. My pleasure. Um, I tried to give a little. I, I know I gave a lot of science. But I also tried to give a lot of art and common uh, misconception. And like I say, the things that uh, really harm us are not necessarily the things that scare or frighten us. And avoid conspiracy theorists when. Ever you go on the web to look at various kinds of information and um, only choose those websites from reputable scientific organizations. I always ask my guests for some kind of a health tip, and most of the people are 
physicians or healers. Uh, I wonder how a toxicologist would give a health tip. Uh, you know, if I had to give you one basic health tip, Glenn, I would consider probably the most important health tip. Don't let yourself get fat. Don't be obese. If you see you're gaining weight, do something to lose that weight. Exercise. There are, if, if you want to talk about endocrine disruption, nothing can, nothing can disrupt the endocrine system more than obesity. And you know, up until last year, we were the most obese nation on the planet. Now, the, recently, the um, Pacific Islanders, uh, you know, like Bora Bora and uh, Hawaii and places like that have um, exceeded us, but we're still a very obese nation. Even in this state that I live in, Colorado, which is supposedly one of the healthiest states in the union, one out of every two people, one half of the people are too heavy. They have a body mass index that's too heavy. Avoid obesity. That is the best health tip that I can possibly give you. Wow. That's amazing. And, and you know, I, I love the islands. I love uh, Fiji and all those islands yeah. and Hawaii. And, but the interesting difference, I mean, I, I guess obesity is obesity. I, I find so much of it here is within the food structure and the food system of the fast foods and et cetera. Uh, you know, the, the candies, the, the, you know, the oh, hundreds of, of uh, even the ones that they call natural, uh, natural organic candies oh, that I pick off yeah. the shelf and I go, oh, my Lord, <laughs> and I yeah, put back on the that, shelf. And yeah, then in, in the islands. The candy bar in disguise, let there be no doubt. <laughs> yes, yes. and But on the islands, it's, um, you know, I find that people eat, you know, it's like uh, their, their root vegetables, right? Because yeah. that's what makes them full because yeah. they don't have so much of the other. Right. They eat a lot of cassava and things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, does that make a difference? In, <laughs> Boy, I, I, I'm sure that that very, very high starch content does make a difference. Mm -hmm. We all know that the Wahinis take great pride in being obese. You know, in mm -hmm. certain uh, Pacific Island cultures, but um, you hit the nail right on the head. I cannot find one redeeming quality in eating a Snickers bar. <laughs> Absolutely, there is no redeeming quality whatsoever. <clears throat> an apple, excuse me, an apple or a banana is much, much better for you. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> and, and, you know, the latest issue of Newsweek magazine has a cover of a little baby with a big box of, uh, looks like McDonald's-type French fries sitting in front of him, and it says, uh, this child is going to weigh 300 pounds. Well, you start your child on that kind of food, French fries and junk food and candy, that's going to be a lifestyle. It's right. going to become a lifestyle. And they're going to end up with a very high body mass index, and they're going to be fat. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be unhealthy. Diabetes is caused. I mean, one of the major causes of diabetes is overweight. Mm -hmm. 
everybody has been blaming there you can find website after website don't vaccinate your children because there's a compound that contains mercury called thimerosal well that's been proven to be wrong the newest paradigm in autism childhood autism is not mercury and vaccines but children of obese mothers wow that is a new a brand new study and a very new understanding of cause of childhood autism wow that's amazing and, and <clears throat> i mean would it be because what they say is when you're obese this is what of course i've heard i'm not a doctor um that the the amount of uh fat in the body has a tendency to hold more of the toxins or in yes, the body. Yes, it does. It certainly does. Most of the things that are harmful to biological organisms are what we call lipophilic, fat-loving chemicals that reside in the fat of the body. Yes, absolutely. You're 100% spot on. So, so would that... I mean, would that naturally affect the fetus? Because, you know, the fetus is absorbing, you know, the nutrients in the mother's body. Would that be part of the cause of that autism being so high? There, the autism could, in fact, be caused. Yes, that's, that, that's a reasonable hypothesis. I haven't seen it tested yet. Uh, you'd have to actually know how much of a particular chemical partitions away from the fat, reaches the placenta, crosses the blood placental barrier, and gets into the fetus? You have to know that data before one can conclusively make any kind of um, any kind of decision about that. Mm -hmm. But. Don't get that. That's, I mean, it's just, it, it's just the biggest, best health tip that I can possibly, possibly pass on to anybody. Okay. I was going to say that at the same time, the uh, Time magazine cover showed a mother yeah. breastfeeding a young uh, child. Yeah. And it would be interesting yeah. to see a study years from now about those two kids. Uh, which one did better? Yeah. It certainly would. Of course, it's an N of one for both experiments. That's that's right. Not a very big, not a very big experiment, but um, it, it certainly would be interesting. I I I would guarantee you that the three hundred pounder is going to be a lot unhealthier than the three year old breastfeeder. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. I would like to say that I'm completely grateful to my very special guest and friend, Dr. Gary Winston, for sharing his expertise and wisdom with us today. I would like to thank all of my teachers and my healers, those who have helped me to heal uh, in my lifetime. I look forward to spending another uh, week in the healthcare galaxy with all of you. But until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Dr. Winston. You. My pleasure, Christina. A joy meeting you and uh, seeing you and Glenn. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
Well, we hope we hope to get you back uh, okay. sooner or later. <laughs> I hope so. It's always fun. Yes. Take good care. And, uh, as you like to say in your emails, joy and blessings. Thank you. To you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.